Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Well, he exited as quietly as he entered the league, as quietly as he won all of his championships, and arguably the greatest power forward we've ever laid eyes on. (coughs) uh, The Hall of Fame is next for Mr. Duncan. Your thoughts? Uh, I will officially (laughs) state that I will pick it. The NBA Hall of Fame ceremony, unless they announce that he is a center, not a power forward. Oh, man, I got to say, when the information came down and everybody was talking about it and referring to him, you know, putting his numbers up against the likes of Carl Malone. So unfair, so unfair. (laughs) And I I thought of you. I could do nothing but think of you because you are set that that man was a center. He played... He played his first two years as a power forward because David Robinson was the center. Robinson retired. He moved to the center position for at, how many years he played? 19? At minimum, 16 out of his 19 years, he played center. And they're still calling him the greatest power forward of all time. I'm sorry. That's disrespectful to Carl Malone. He's a center, and he will go down, no doubt, in the top five centers of all time. Chamberlain, Russell, Shaq, uh, Duncan, Kareem. Kareem, Chamberlain, Russell are top three. Choose your order. But, the le- you know, number four and five, there could be three or four guys that can o- sure. occupy those last two spots. But Duncan is definitely in there, in my opinion, as a center. Yeah, I think maybe the um, – he's just he, – I guess out of all the players you listed in my mind in watching Duncan and, and some of the others and then seeing highlights of the others, he didn't have that typical power power game that you associate most old-school centers having because he could play out of neither, the high – Neither did Kareem. Kareem. No, yeah, Kareem, Kareem was a little more finesse. Kareem sweet sky hook. But you think of Duncan, you think of that – that elbow jumper off the glass from 15 feet or playing out of the high post and assisting and stuff that you're, you know, the shacks of the world. Other than, never saw other than Patrick Ewing 
um, there's probably the two best outside shooting centers. Yeah. Um, but he's he you know his footwork is comparable to Kevin McHale in the whole back to the basket, front to the basket, rebound sure. defense. I mean, he did it all. Yeah, that's um, true. But he was a center. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, enough said on that. It actually kind of ties into what we got going today. What do we have on tap today? What, do you, what did the host cook up for our loyal listeners? Um, first, do we have anything to recap on Roach on Recovery from last our last show? Uh no, other than we're dangerously close to the start of training camp. We did mention that in the last show, yeah. that when we came on the air this time, we would be right on the doorstep, itching, right itching. On, right on the cusp. <laughs> yes. So, um, today's the 19th. Uh, next week. We had to get that in there, and I'm going to oh, yeah. tell you right now, I know for a fact my wife is listening to the show, and the idea that that soundbite was just dropped and her hearing us talking about, oh, football's just around the corner, she's dreading it right now, right this very second. Well, I do know when my uh, <clears throat> magazines start resuming, <laughs> yes. uh, I expect my first issue to be arriving any moment now, Yes, and my wife... We'll see it and wonder, wait a second, is that the football magazine that you always get? I said, yep. She said, that crap is starting already? That's it. Training camp. (laughs) That's it. She knows the soundbite, too. She knows that soundbite now, so great stuff. No, I can't think of really anything else on the, uh, as far as the recap goes. Okay. Um, So Duncan retired. We had the passing of the late, great Nate Thurman. Yeah, that's a local story. Uh, but, it is a local story, but a center but, a center for the Warriors. Center, but, uh, but you know, from back, 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 1970s era, late 60s, 70s era, or mid-60s to mid-70s era basketball player. Um, so the, the, the OGs would definitely uh, know who he is. Um, he wasn't an unknown, but uh, kind of made his name and his post-career name and living in the Bay Area. Yep. For, uh, for around around with the Warriors and um, uh, yeah, he'll be missed definitely because he he was on their post-game show I think that they used to have. Yeah, he mm-hmm. had made appearances in a lot of different kind of venues when yeah. it came to like. Uh, Warriors media, whether uh-huh. it be you know certain oh, radio shows, he's right. always down to come in and give an interview, or yeah, sometimes pregame, postgame, whatever it may be. Even uh, sideline reporters might catch him at the uh, at the arena and always willing to give his thoughts and opinions. So just before we go into our topic, um, <clears throat> we might have touched on this a little bit in our last show. Now that we've had a couple of weeks to let it sink in, and 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 now you we you can evaluate without emotion your thoughts on the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers and what they accomplished. 
on what they accomplished. Um, well, obviously, historic. You, you've already processed through your no. depression and 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 post no. post no. loss no. Uh, no. angst I, and anguish. No, uh, that that will never go away. At least some part of that will never go away. That, that's this a is, lasting this thing. This is why I see. Well, I, this is why I've always tell you it's part of the reason why, no matter how how much glory and 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 greatness and great feelings, uh, the great. Mariano Rivera has given us <laughs> Arizona Diamondbacks. It is still giving up that hit <laughs> with two outs in the bottom of the ninth in Game Seven of the World Series in 2001. That sticks in my craw. Oh, that hurts. That pre- prevented the New York Yankees from an unprecedented fourth straight World Series title. Unprecedented for oh, I mean the, for them in the modern era. Yeah. Well, and now tell me, you're a fan like me, that you would rather your team be swept. I would rather them be swept, blown out, <laughs> yes. lose by 30. Exactly. Um, oh, that's what makes it hurt so much more. Because then you know that they just weren't up to, up to snuff. Yeah, yeah. Simple as that. Exactly. Now, did they, uh, the one thing I can't remember about that series, was it back and forth, or did any one of them have like a two-game lead at any point in the series, like with the Warriors being up 3-1? Or was it in like that Arizona series? Yeah, was it the, two one two two? Yeah, three, the Yankees two? were always behind. Oh, you know, okay. one game, one game. So they finally caught up to make to to get it to seven games. But uh, your experience is probably similar, but almost I say similar, not the same, because the Cavaliers and the and the Warriors don't have such a storied rivalry as the Yankees and the Red Sox. And this wasn't even in the World Series. When right. The Red Sox came right. back from th- – Yankees were up 3-0. 3-0, yeah. And they yeah. came back and won four straight. And it had never been done. Right. Yeah. To, to make it to the World Series. And finally, they won the curse. Yeah. They, they won their World Series. Yeah. Um, but that's been such a storied rivalry throughout the years. Oh, yeah. That and it, tr- that transcends all sports, too. Yes, Everyone yes. knows Yankees, Red Sox, doesn't matter the sport. Right. That's a huge rivalry. So uh, we were uh, devastated, um, and some of us had to seek, you know, <laughs> treatment, help, and <laughs> yeah. all kinds of assistance oh, uh, to get past that. Oh, man. It, 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 I, it, it, that was worse than the World Series loss, even though it wasn't in the World Series, because you know we're up three zero. It's against Boston. Yeah, we're getting you're ready, already. We're getting ready to give them the ultimate, ultimate smackdown on our way to another <laughs> World Series. That's right. You're already booking your hotel room in the next city or whatever. There you go. So yeah. So already people are talking next year that it's going to be uh, the rubber match for the Warriors and the Cavaliers, and that would be good. Yeah, that'd be good. But it. it Two matches, you know, when I say matches, I mean meetings in the finals or in the championships, uh-huh. does not a rivalry make. But because they're on opposite coasts, in opposite conferences, and they only meet each other twice a year in the regular season, right. it's similar to Boston, L.A. They only right. play twice. And, but so if they were ever going to meet again in the playoffs, it would only be in the finals. That's right. And so that's where they're – but Boston and L.A. had a historical – Rivalry from the sixties. Yeah, that's you know right. What I'm saying where the Celtics, of course, killed them every year. Uh huh. To Jerry West, great anguish. He was one and nine, or yeah. one and eight, yeah. in, in the finals. No thanks to Boston, of course. Right. Um. So. I'd yeah. Like, no. I'd like, would, I'd, I'd like to see them again. I would too. I just hope 
or I would wish for both teams full strength. Mm-hmm. The first year when the Warriors beat them, they were without Kyrie. He, he injured him, his knee in the first game. Mm-hmm. Um, this year, you had you know a suspension, which was whatever, mm-hmm. and then Curry's playing not at 100%. And I'd like to see both teams full strength. Mm-hmm. LeBron, like this might be his last whatever to the up and comings because the Warriors are young. And yeah, I, I would lo- yeah, I would like to see that. Yep. All right, our topic uh, today is uh, discussing current events while in, tr- in treatment. Okay. Um, this brings me uh, back many years to my time in treatment, and I'm going to talk about two events and then talk about why it's important. Well, we should talk about why it's important uh, and and how it should be done. Okay. So. The, the two signature things that happened while I was in treatment were, I'll start out with, was, is the earthquake in 1989 in the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay. Okay. And right during the uh, Bay Bridge World Series. October 17th, mm-hmm. uh, a Tuesday. And we're sitting in the Swan Lake living room getting ready to watch. I'm not sure which game it was, but it was at Candlestick, the game. Yeah, I think it was, I want to say it was game three. Okay. Game three or game four can't remember and the television just goes black for maybe 20 seconds so we're thinking it's something local because we're way up in the mountains so we're thinking someone stepped on the cord or something happened so they didn't pay the light bill it's it's a local (laughs) issue something's going on with the the tv or or whatnot sure and then it comes back on with the fuzzy lines, you know, and, mm-hmm. and then then slowly the picture comes into focus and you see the guys, you know, you know, the shuffling around in the background. And like, we've just had an earthquake here in, in San Francisco or a major, a major earthquake, whatever. And so here we are thirty six hundred miles away. I have no idea what an earthquake. Yeah, is. We, we we cannot relate to what that is and yeah. what that is like. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And. I'm like, all right, let's just get the damn game going already. <laughs> right. Get, get, it, get it together. You know, get, get all the, uh, the vendors back, you know, get the drinks back, you know, in, in the, into the holders and let's get moving. Right. Okay. But, of course, it, you know, it wasn't to be. And then, uh, you know, we, as we read more and more, we realized how um, <clears throat> significant it was. We did not you know, talk about that at all. Because again, we just couldn't relate to that. We, you know, it, sure. it just wasn't something that we could understand. And and there was no one from the West coast who could yeah, say, to explain. to explain, Hey, let me tell you what it's like, what, 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 what have you see? We had people from other parts that could say, Hey, let me tell you what a tornado is like. Let me tell you what a, a, a real hurricane is like head on, et cetera, et cetera. But, or we knew what a, thund- uh, a snowstorm was like, but earthquake, not in our reality. Right. When I went over to work at Parksville, which is about 10 minutes away from the Swan Lake facility. Another, so another large 200 plus bed site, um, Desert Storm had started in August. Okay. Okay. But it really didn't hit home, at least for me, until I got to Parksville. One day, walking into the lower into Parksville, when you walk in, the entrance is at the lower level of where the the 
is you walk in at the, at the entrance, you step up a couple of steps into the lower, what I call the lower promenade, which is where the living room is and the TV in the front area. And then you step up even more, maybe five, six, seven steps to the main level. Okay. Which is where the dining room is, and the offices, and you know, and everything is going on. That's the main. So I'd be like the main floor here. Sure. Okay. okay. So I remember walking in, turning into the to the lower promenade in that big big TV, and see, you know they're talking about you know the troops and going on and so on and so forth. So this is the first time in our life, my lifetime, and a lot of our peers' lifetime of seeing real war and. Soldiers in the U.S. Boom, really going into war, right? Right. Even though it was like a, a one day, a one punch knockout. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. But yeah. it was still something to make you stop and look. Okay? Yeah, you think, and, oh, this is only stuff we read about in history books exactly. or learn about in class. That caused a lot more angst for people because mixed in throughout the uh, the the residents were. Vietnam vets, sure, of course, yeah. People had, who had been in war, or who have family who are currently okay, enlisted, exactly. So that there was a lot more anxiety, a lot more angst. As a result, discussion came to to the fore sure. about it. Sure. Um, and what I learned and how I learned is, you know, how how to not only participate in that type of discussion, even though I, I, I was never in the army or, you know, in the military, right. you know, what both my older brothers were, but they weren't in during any wartime. Mm, yep. Okay. So again, something that I personally can identify with, but obviously I can witness and see other people who, who were, and the emotions it was kicking up for them, the anxiety it was kicking up for them. Um, just seeing it on television. So it was almost like if they were watching a, a an old school movie of, you know, war and what, whatever, John Wayne or whatever. Yeah. And it just brings up stuff for them because of their experience. But they wouldn't talk about it. So it was this event, though, because it was so real and present that they started to talk about my, my experience. Hmm. And, and we're just sitting there just blown away because, oh, like man. you said, it's just stuff that you read about in school. Okay, and from my age group, we only read about it in right. school. Or you can't; it's not tangible. You can't touch it. It's just exactly, um, or you see it in footage on documentaries and so on and so yeah. forth. But when you hear guys, and was, at that time it was only guys telling you about, you know, I, I was in Vietnam for a couple of years, and you know, and this is what I saw, and blah blah blah, and you start to make the connection to their drug use. Oh yeah, okay? sure. And a lot of them where it started in. Vietnam, and I mean actually in the country. Yeah, you know, since there was a lot of poppy, a lot of the a yeah, lot a lot of the opium, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, and then how their life kind of spiraled in and spiraled out, and you know, then you add what we now know as PTSD. Mm-hmm. Okay, back then we didn't know Jack, you know, what to call right. it, you know, whatever. Um, just knew the guy had a rough life. He, or yeah, hey, you know, it was like, <laughs> hey, you know, you know, slap him on the back, say, hey, you got to move on, you got to, you know, <laughs> right. move forward, but. Now we know better, okay? But just sitting there as one of 12, you know, in, in the room listening to these guys, maybe it was two, two or three in, in the room that actually can speak to it, um, it was mind-blowing, sure. absolutely sure. mind-blowing. And it 
made me realize as – and by the way, I'm sitting there at that time as – even though I wasn't – you know, my role was not as a counselor. Wayne Butler would often use – because he knew I was trained as a counselor. He would often use me or utilize me uh, in certain group settings. He would let me run morning meeting and things like that, but he would utilize me in that way. But here, I, my, I wasn't, quote-unquote, facilitating. Okay, there was a there was another counselor sits and I let that person do the facilitating. I was just more interested in, in the discussion. Okay. I had nothing to say because I was just be, after being blown away by listening to these guys talk about their experiencing. In my head, I was just starting to put together the chain of events for them. It was like, oh wow, now I could see how this guy ended up on heroin. Right. I could see right. how this guy ended up homeless or and, and then, you know, the the sequence of events in throughout his life as he's talking. But what brought it to the – he wasn't – prior to this event happening in America, thousands of miles away, prior to that, he wasn't talking about this, though. Mm -hmm. All that was being talked about is I'm an addict. Yeah, I used drugs for 20 years, heroin for 20 years or whatever it was, but not no the – No story, no not context the, behind the, it. the root. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And this generated that. And so ever since then – you, you've heard me use the word on this radio show many times about talking about the root. Yeah. Getting to the root of things mm -hmm. and then working your way forward. And is that the desert storm, that they call it a war. I don't call it a damn war. I mean, now looking back, it was like, <laughs> right, really, right. come on. That started me on as a, in, in terms as when counseling people, what's, what's the backstory here? We know what the front story is. Yeah, I know you've been using, <clears throat> excuse me, 10 years, 15 years, whatever. But is, is there, and if there is, what is the backstory? Mm -hmm. And let's talk about that and then work our way forward. When I came out here to California, one of the things I was interested in knowing when talking to my colleagues about, because remember, that happened in 89, I came out here in 91. So we're still fresh. Right. Okay. And it was like, Tell me what I want. What was what is that like? Because now here I am now in the you know, I'm, I'm we're living right on the fault, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> right on the fault line. And you know, my wife for a while would not go over any bridges, scary, yeah. Now, Joe lived at that time in Walnut Creek, which is you got to go across either the San Mateo Bridge or the, the Oakland, San Francisco, Oakland um, Bay Bridge, which is the one that mm -hmm. came down, collapsed, yeah. Me and Joe, or Joe and I, debated whether or not to tell my wife that that was the bridge because we—that was the bridge we were go. It was, the, you know, the easier bridge to go over in For terms sure. of route. Right? Yeah, Straight and plus through. I liked going down the highway and seeing the the bay, you know, after yeah. you pass the airport and all that. So I liked that view, right? Yeah. So I wouldn't take the San Mateo Bridge, even though it was going across the bay. That view just had did something for me, the water being so close and whatnot, right? Yeah. When we told her that that was the bridge, that <laughs> now and and this is where wording is very important because they'll say the bridge collapsed. When that's not the bridge didn't collapse. Yeah, the upper deck. A section of the upper deck's deck gave way. Yeah. Okay. But if you just say to someone the bridge collapsed, they think of oh my god the bridge fell into the water and you know and and you know and collapsed. Right. Right. Okay? That's not what happened. And so when we eventually, uh, for some reason, we eventually had to tell her because she knew that a bridge collapsed and there were only one or two bridges that we would take. 
And so we couldn't hold her off any longer as to... Oh, she kept inquiring. Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay, okay. Which one of these two bridges is the one that collapsed? Yeah. Okay? And so we said, it's the San Francisco Bay Bridge. Oh, you mean that one that we've been taking back and forth to see Joe, blah, blah, blah? I said, yeah. She said, I'm not going over that bridge anymore. Then we started taking the San Mateo Bridge. <laughs> but I did convince her to, on one time on the way back, because... You know, it's the upper level, right? That yeah, that went down, right? Way, yeah. On the way back to go, because I said we're going to the lower level on the way, you know, going back, right? I said let's let me just take you on the going back on the lower level, so I can point out to you the section that came down. Oh yeah. So you could see how small, relatively speaking, to how big the bridge is, the section was that came dropped down to the lower level. Okay. Eventually she she did, but she was in a basket case going over the bridge. And what didn't make logistical sense to me was that for those of you who don't know, the San Mateo Bridge is what nine miles long. It's pretty long, okay, yeah. Long. Maybe oh, even... oh, just the majority of it is over water. Yeah. Okay. Um, and whereas the the Bay Bridge is a traditional bridge, you know, you get just the short over the water and then you're right. back on land. Land, right. Point. Uh. But she would rather take that one. In, in her mind, that if the bridge collapsed, it was a shorter drop to the water. That, oh, that, that yeah. was her thinking. Sure. Sure. I'm like, what difference does it make? We're still in 200 <laughs> feet of water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've always, yeah, that's funny that she says that because I, I can get nervous if I think about it too much when going over a bridge. But like for the San Mateo Bridge, for example, the portion where you're basically level with the water, mm-hmm. the fear goes away. Cause I, I think the same way mm-hmm. they're like, it wouldn't really be a drop. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But when you're at the high, you know, the mm-hmm. peak, that's when you starts to feel it a little bit. I would, I couldn't drive an either end lane, you know, that's near. Oh the, yeah. You got to get toward got, the middle. I got to get to the middle. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my goodness. Would she walk over the Golden Gate like a lot of people do, take the walk so they can say they've walked over the Golden Gate? You know, we haven't done that yet, and I don't know if we will now because we have dogs, and we found out they don't allow dogs on the bridge. Oh, the wow, walk. yeah, I didn't so, know that. Um, but I think prior to, yeah, she would have. She oh, would have, okay. yeah. Um, we've gone on the boat rides underneath, you know, and all that stuff. But, sure. Um, when people told me that, you know, the you know the light poles were – you know, bending over and, yeah. you know, this and that was happening. I was like, I can't, I can't fathom it. I can't imagine it. I don't know what it, I I can't incorporate it into my mind what it would be like. Right. Until we were sitting in our living room in our apartment one day and we experienced, I guess, what you guys would call a tremor. Yeah, like an aftershock. Okay, type a tremor. Thing. And I'm just sitting in the living room watching TV and the walls, the TV is against the wall and the wall moved like a wave, just like a, you know, like a wave moves. Yeah. And it didn't even occur to me until the the the, the news interrupted what I was watching and said, "Hey, we, we're just reporting that we may have had a small tremor here in the northern California and re- registering what whatever on the Richter scale." Sure. My wife is ready to run out of the apartment. I'm like, "Where are you going? We're on the third floor. If there's any place to be, it's to be on the top, right? The building's going to come down, down on top of everyone yeah, else. We just slide down with everything." So talking about current events today, let's bring it to today, what's happening in our society. Um, it's 
I'm torn by this whenever this, it, you know, it started last year with all the shootings, right, mm-hmm. of, of, of by the police of armed or armed men, um, mostly black, of course. And then the, the two high-profile ones that happened recently, and now you have cops being targeted. I'm torn because I, my father, policeman, my uncle, police, um, my, uh, uncles, plural, policemen. Friends that I grew up with who are on on the force. I want. I asked my wife recently. Um, do you think any of us who who I chose not to join? I had the opportunity two times to join the force. I chose not to. Yeah. I said, but do you think any of us that didn't are looking at our peers who did and would say that any of these guys would leave their homes with the sole intent of harming somebody? I said, I can't think of any one of them that I know for a fact that's still on the force today that, that's, that they have that type of character. Sure. Unless something has drastically changed that I'm unaware of. So the, I always have to revert back to my father, mm-hmm. okay, or, or use my uncle. Take out the Western world, Okay. And let's say the Western world makes up 10% of the world. Okay. Okay. The other 90% is pretty homogenous, would you say? Sure. Mostly Filipinos live in Philippines and, you know. Yeah. You know, right. Okay. It's, not so, a, it's definitely not the melting pot exa- that you get out here. Exactly. Right. So I'll use the small island nation of Jamaica where I'm from. Ah, uh, beautiful. Okay. My uncle used to tell me stories. My father would tell us some stories. Okay, the population there is 99.99999% black. Okay? Yeah. Do you think there was police brutality? Uh, If I had to guess, I'd say yeah. Tremendous. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a lot of police brutality in 90% of the world against their own, you know, against their own people. Sure, sure. What my father would say is that, so, even though during his day when he was a when he was a, a constable, they didn't carry firearms. When he became a detective, he carried a firearm. Okay, but they used their nightsticks or their batons. Now he didn't engage in this. He didn't need to because he was very well respected in the in the in the communities that he worked in. Mm-hmm. But a lot of but. When he would tell some, let's say, not a homeless person, but someone just hanging out, my hands are in quotes, mm-hmm. on the street, and he would tell them, get out the, you know, get out the walkway, because don't be in the way of the people walking. Sure, right? sure. And if they didn't move, they would get a swift, get a little whack, whack. a good, we would call a good old-fashioned West Indian licking. Yeah. With the baton. <laughs> yeah. Okay? And sometimes guys got beat down. Right. Either either on the street or in the station house, you know, in the back, you know, in the back uh, cell, the station house. Yeah. That's the way it was. That's the way it was. Mm -hmm. Okay. He did tell me this is very important. The one he said, so police brutality exists all over. It existed in Jamaica. And he said it exists all over. He said the only thing a black in America This is what he said to me. He said the only question that a black in America who's the victim of police brutality would be able to ask if it was a black person and, let's say, a white police officer is, 
am I a victim of police brutality because of the color of my skin? He said in Jamaica, they could never ask that question because, we're, you know, they were both the same color. Right. It would be, are you victimizing me because I'm not moving fast enough or because, you know, you didn't like me and I was here last week and you told me to move and now I'm back again. You know, it would, it would have to be something else. Right. Because, yeah. You couldn't draw that straw. Exactly. You couldn't say yeah. that. In this melting pot, you can because mm-hmm. the predominance, even though there's been great strides in the the large urban departments, mm-hmm. right, in mm-hmm. diversifying the force, not only in terms of, of uh, race, but in terms of gender, too, right? Right. Um, but still, on scale, the large majority of police officers are, are white. And if you look at it in terms of the population breakdown in the country, it's about where it is. I mean, I don't think uh, black officers make up 13% nationwide. Sure, sure. But if you use the large urban forces, large urban police departments, in New York, they're at 50%. In L.A., same. San Francisco, you know, very diversified in San Francisco. So you use those as the example. You can't use the city of San Carlos. Right, yeah, exactly. As an an example. Right. That's where we live, you know, the city where we live, folks. That's a poor example to use. So you use San Francisco, you use L.A., Philadelphia, big cities. Sure. What are their departments like? Are they diversified or do they reflect the communities they serve? The answer is yes. <clears throat> so Joe's brother was a cop. Uh, a lot, you know, a lot of the guys who were the, uh, one peer group above us became police officers and a lot of them became alcoholics, <laughs> which tells you something. Yeah. Um, So when these things happen in society or or are happening, they are – our environments in treatment aren't – we call them – we say they're self-contained, but they're not self-contained to the point that people don't know what's going on out in the world. Yeah, and that's not the goal either. Right. Yeah, we're not trying to. We're not like like, (laughs) – Right. Where they wanted to make sure you didn't know anything. That was happening. So people people know what's happening in, in the local environment, the, the 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 national environment, and the international environment. And sometimes there are events such as what's going on right now that are impactful. Mm-hmm. And I'm of the mindset, and have always been, and have tried to practice this: is let's talk about this thing because don't think for one second that people that are in treatment, that these things, whatever they're thinking, whatever they want to say is not floating around in them. Right. So provide the forum for us to have the discussion, no matter what it is. How many times in an encounter group does like a race issue come up? Okay. Mm-hmm. And I've seen when, at times when that happens that after that, it never gets talked about again. When, okay, there's obviously an issue in the family, okay? We don't, just because, we don't bury it, and it's never to be spoken about again until maybe the next week's encounter group, and it resurfaces and it keeps getting buried. No. If there's an issue like that that comes to the fore in encounter group, and then let's just see that, you know what, there's something here that needs to have a larger structured conversation, 
we set that up and we had that large, larger structure conversation, not in counter group style, mm-hmm. but an intellectual conversation of what's going on. Right. What's your experience? What's your thoughts, et cetera. And if you have some emotions about it that you can't con- like articulate in a controlled fashion, then we you leave that for encounter group. Sure. Okay. But we got to have the conversation. And then if we can have the conversation in a structured environment, that then allows the clients on their own, peer to peer, at the dinner table, where, at the lunch table, breakfast table, wherever, mm-hmm. free time, while exercising, to then have their own smaller peer to peer conversations after the family has had their larger conversation. Yeah, to break the ice, so to speak. Exactly. These issues don't, they, they can't go, quote unquote, unspoken, untalked about, unsaid when they exist. Yeah, not only do they exist, but folks have feelings about them. Exactly. And so that's a, that's a big point, too. Like you said, you can, you can either pretend like they don't exist or maybe just ignore the fact that these things are happening, go on about your day without discussing them, but that does not rectify the fact that there are some people walking around the community who feel a certain way about maybe what's happening and probably some of them even strongly uh-huh. but you know the forum needs to be provided for that to initiate itself to kind of the spark well some will say <clears throat> to play devil's advocate well what does it have to do with recovery mm-hmm. that's stuff happening outside that's, that's outside business. Mm-hmm. Why are you bringing that in here? Well, my answer to that is that it's not outside business. It's actually has a lot to do with recovery because in recovery, we talk about talking about your feelings, mm-hmm. speaking your thoughts, having intellectual conversations right. about any subject, whatever it is that, 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 you know, moves you. Okay. So if there are things happening out in society, in the world that are impactful, I'm not talking about, hey, I heard this gang is moving in to take over territory. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm talking about stuff that impacts everybody in society and that everybody's talking about, that everybody's going to have thoughts, feelings uh, about. Well, that impacts recovery because people are going to have feelings about it. Right. And some, because of their own life experience, like you said, may have very strong feelings about it. Mm-hmm. Or not even their own life experience, just maybe a family member's life experience on both sides of the coin, by the way. Okay? And so the discussion needs to be had. Now, here's the tricky part. And this is where it uh, it can go sideways very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It needs to be an experienced hand at the wheel. Sure. When you are facilitating something like this, right? To have these type of discussions about race, about impactful events out in society, whatever they may be, whatever they may, whatever they may be grounded in. Okay. You're going to tap into some powerful emotion. Exactly. Yeah. So not just anyone who doesn't have experience and understand the level of emotion that may come to the fore and not know how to, Direct it, sure. Navigate, that, navigate yeah. it, um, absorb it, 
take one for the team, absorb it, yeah. you know, um, et cetera. And simultaneous to that, can keep the conversation going, allowing people a forum to speak and, and get and allowing them an opportunity to be heard. Yeah. <clears throat> to me, that is integral to recovery. The 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 deep the subject matter may always change. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the practice of talking about your feelings, talking about your thoughts, and processing yourself your way through them will never go away. So just because the impetus for it has been originated from the outside, something that's going on outside of the building in the larger society, doesn't mean that we don't use it and talk about it because they're talking about it anyway, probably amongst themselves. Okay. Yeah. So why not have a structured conversation, a geared conversation, a, uh, a conversation that could be better um, utilized for people to benefit from. Yeah. It's, it's current. And, you know, another thing to piggyback on that, Life doesn't exist for a client or anyone for that matter, regardless of where they are at at this time in their life in a bubble. You're going to, you're not going to be in a sheltered environment forever. You're going to enter back into a society Mm. where things are happening and have been happening and will happen. And it's important to know how to process that Mm. because this is going to happen in your life at some point with your significant other. Uh, you know, you may have children at some point watching the news and asking, you know, what, you know, what about this white cops killing black people? Kids are inquisitive mm-hmm. and, and you're going to need to be able to answer those questions in an intellectual and intelligent manner and have that conversation amongst your peers, amongst your family, mm-hmm. because this is the world that we live in. And to block that out and say, no, you know, we're just going to focus on what's happening in here. You're ignoring a big part of this individual's life or what's Mm going to be a part of this individual's life. And that's important. Mm -hmm. You know, we've said that for on the show in different subjects, too, that the the sheltered environment is what is needed for a particular reason while they're here. But not to ignore the idea that at some point this person will reenter society Mm -hmm. and things like this ought to be discussed. One of the things that I was taught in training for things like this, right. Mm -hmm. Is this wasn't the terminology that was used because it wasn't around at this time, but this was pretty much what he meant. Felix is you almost have to, as the facilitator, you have to be like a talk show host meaning that you cannot your your emotions and your thoughts about the subject matter are irrelevant are irrelevant (laughs) yep okay um you need to go and have your own conversation with Mm -hmm. whomever your peer group or whatever okay but in terms of trying to facilitate that conversation it can't be you know about what you think and what you feel and what you believe that's right. Because that's that's just in, and the worst thing you said was that that's the starting point. Let me tell you what I believe, what I think, and what I feel. Now, <laughs> with that said, what do you think? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No, that's not how that's not how that conversation would go. 
No, yeah, your role or your job, like you said, you're just putting the topic Here's on the, the table topic. and opening it up. That's right. Here's what's going on. What what do you, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings about this? Let's go around the room. Everyone get an opportunity to share briefly, and then we can dig into some of the comments, some and give feedback and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, you got to have the ability to uh, keep a, a lasso, L A S S O, you know, that they use to yeah, lasso, the... lasso on the group to keep everyone together. Even if there are strong opinions and, and emotional opinions on the subject matter, which there would be on the subject matter, especially about um, what's going on. <clears throat> but at some point, and if you're into social media, you will very rarely get this there in today's world. Mm-hmm. Okay, so back in the day when social media didn't exist, you either had to write to people <laughs> or you would have a phone conversation or you would have a, a, a face, you know, a face to face conversation. Sure. Right. Sure. So at some point, the conversation and as a facilitator, you, you, you allow for, you want to, you can get emotional content from a person without them going out of control. And if you sense that they're moving into an arena of out of control, your job, of course, is to bring them back. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> but if at some point the conversation does not get to an intellectual space. Right. Okay. Where it's all, you're saying where it's all emotion. It's just, where it's we, all raw emotion and we're not actually. Yeah. If, if, the, if the whole conversation is emotion then it becomes unproductive or counterproductive. Sure. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay. That's what we have encountered before. Mm-hmm. And we're not thinking about what we're saying. We're just just blowing off steam. Blowing off steam. Mm-hmm. But in this type of stru- – when we hold these structured conversations, we, we, uh, we have to allow space for emotional response because people feel and have connections to whatever is being discussed. Yeah. Okay. And so you have to allow room for that within reason. Okay. Because of the, we're not in an encounter group. Right. So, but at a certain point, though, we have to move past that in the conversation to an intellectual conversation because the intellectual conversation is where you're going to get most of the uh, really useful conversation. Because people are no longer tied to an, an, an emotion in regards to what they're saying. And let me interject, because something that you just said had me put it in my own mind the perfect way in which you're trying to explain this. The emotion went, and like you said, that's expected. Right. That may be what first comes out, and you have to allow some room for that. When the emotion leads, there's no thought process. This is all kind of like a reaction to what you're hearing, and your emotion is that's fine. It's going to be driven by your experience, your life, and you know so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that raw kind of emotion, without any thought behind, maybe the words that are coming out of your mouth, it's just happening. Mm-hmm. When we get that out, we can take a deep breath, and like you said, now we get to an intellectual part where you're not just reacting, but you're responding. Mm-hmm. You're thinking about the topic at hand. Okay. 
yeah, I can be open to what someone else's perspective now that I've kind of like let out what I needed to let out and lay it on the table. And you get to that higher level of mm-hmm. conversation where we're learning and we're thinking, and you're actually maybe challenging your own mm-hmm. uh, views on what you, you know, how you thought you believed about a certain situation. And that's the powerful part. Like mm-hmm. you said, that's the part where it needs, where we need to get, because if it's all led by emotion and there's no thought process, all we're doing again is blowing off steam in their other forums for that. This is about learning once we get beyond that initial reaction. And you, and you also won't be able to get thoughtful um, possible, you know, let's say if you won't be able to um, pose to someone, if you were in a position to affect change, what solutions would you want to put into place to, mm-hmm. to affect change in this, mm-hmm. on this subject or in this area? Right. You can't get there. If the if you're going to respond from an emotional point of view rather sure. than an intellectual point of view, okay? Sure. Because <clears throat> you can't say, "Well, I want to kill him." You know, that's well, that's not affecting change. <laughs> that's just right. killing somebody. Right. So I want to uh, tell a story, if you don't mind. Oh, absolutely not. Circa 1982. Okay, we're going back a little bit. Going back a little bit. Before I was born. All right. But um, the city of New York did a mass hiring of police officers. Okay. Um, I would have been in that class, uh, but I missed it by two weeks, the age um, requirement. But mentally, like, you were there. Oh, yeah. Like, there was if no, you had been that age, yeah, there's the, no the, question. The, the class started on June 17th and I didn't turn you had to be 19 in order to go into the academy I didn't turn 19 until two weeks after that so I didn't make that class and that was it I didn't you know say okay I missed it by two weeks yeah and but they in that in a time span from 1982 through 1986 New York City Police Department did mass mass hiring okay and they were, why why was that for a little background? Um, they were just that short, or well, you can you could say uh, crack, okay. <laughs> crack cocaine, oh, sure, okay, you know, okay, coming on the scene, you know what yeah. I mean, and you know cocaine coming on the scene. The department and, needed you know, a lot of reinforcements. Yeah, right. So, so at one point they hired sixty thousand. No, wow. I'm sorry, sixty thousand took the exam. Okay, you weren't being called unless you scored above the ninety percent. On, okay. on the exam. Okay? okay. So they were taking the top ten percent. Sure. Okay. Um, I scored a ninety-seven. Got called the second time around. I scored a perfect score, and got called. as a matter of fact, the investigator because they always give you background. He said, "There's no way you're not getting you know hired," but my mother and my three sisters, because of what was going on in New York at the time, with cops being uh, sure under the firing on the you know on the yeah. bad end of the gun yeah uh they were like no absolutely you don't need not. to do this no 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 so i was like okay <clears throat> in my mind i was just following in my father's footsteps okay you know i mean this was just what was in the family so but in 1982 where we lived we're remember now we're 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 turning uh, 18 19 we're at the height of our testosterone if you will <laughs> yeah, okay right and all of a sudden, you got groups 
in like groups of 10, groups of 15 police officers coming through our complex, you know, making the rounds. We have five circles of four buildings each, and they're just walking around, okay? All of them are white, and this is a predominantly black uh, housing complex. Interesting. thing I said was that we're 17, 18, and 19, so we're at the height of our – testosterone and stupidity and you know all of that stuff right you're ready to throw some challenges out there yeah 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 so we looked it upon that these guys were coming into our cage the lion's den weren't being respectful and so and so there were some very very tense encounters Mm. how did it blow over no one got shot Okay, although on one occasion, one evening, <clears throat> one of the rookie and they were all rookies, one of the rookie officers dropped his gun belt to take one of our one of my friends on. Oh, okay. And hit one, his, one of his partners immediately said, pick that gun belt up because that's a fire, fireable offense. You never drop your gun belt. And he took his belt off. Said, Let's go. He's ready to throw hands. Ready, ready yeah. to go down. And this said, you know, and. So that's the closest it ever came. But other than that, it was name, you know, name calling from a distance. Let me see your ID. Go f yourself. You know, blah blah. You know, <laughs> right, it, was, right. it was bad. Okay. This is at the beginning of the summer. We got two months to go of this. It's hot. It's humid. Yeah. We're, we're not going anywhere because this is where we live, and we're just hanging out in front of our buildings. Right. You know what I'm saying? And these guys are walking through like, mil- you know, like, you know, in two, sure. two rows, like military, you know? Uh, yeah, like you guys are at war or like, something. Right? So, but as time went on, as we're going through late June, July, and into now the, the, the dog days of August, okay, they realized one thing very important. We weren't going anywhere because we lived there. Sure. Okay. And there became this eat this first this uneasy truce, and it started with okay. the way they walk through changed. Okay, there was no longer that distinct purpose. Right. Well, what was governing the purpose was fear, because they were coming into. I mean, these guys are fresh out of the academy, and just boom, dropped into the one thirteen precinct, and into this neighborhood which they know nothing about. Okay, they're all white, the, the, the officers at that yeah. time. And, and they're walking through, you know, you come out of the academy, you're, you know, you're gung-ho, or, you pumped know, up, bumped yeah. up, you know, you got your gun, you know, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and it meant nothing to us that you had a gun and a badge. We, we, it meant absolutely nothing to us. And yeah. they and guys were going nose to nose, you know, you know, your mother this, you know, and you know, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't go that far because, I had more respect knowing what my father's background was. Sure, that okay? makes sense. But you could tell that it was rooted in fear the way that they were conducting themselves and walking around. I, I mean, they had the nerve to ask us for ID, and we were like, you know, get the hell out of here. We're not showing yeah. you our ID. We live here. Yeah. Okay. Didn't want to appear weak. They no. wanted a, a show of strength. Remember, we're 17, 18, 19, right? Yeah. So it was like the battle of wills. Who was going to give first? And smartly... They had the first give, okay, which was the manner in which they walked through kind of calmed down. Okay. Okay. And then an, an interesting happened. Then they would walk through and they would be the head nod. 
Ah, okay. You know what I mean? The acknowledgement. The acknowledgement, right. The head nod, okay? Then there would be the walkthrough where they would hang around for a little bit. How you guys doing? Huh, yeah. You know what I mean? By the end of the summer, it was what started out as there was going to be a, a war going down here. Became, hey, how you doing? All right, how you guys doing? They're just walking through on their beat. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it went from one extreme to the other extreme. And what was the root of this fear? Fear on both sides. What are these sure. guys doing here? Where are they coming from? How are they walking through our place like this? And them, they're like, we, they're like, oh my, you know, my goodness, <laughs> you know, maybe that's why they put us ten strong or twelve strong yeah, walking, walking we're in groups. Killed you know, out here, you know I mean? <laughs> right? But we didn't have any weapons or anything right. like that. You know what I mean? But a mile or two down the road was that life of weaponry and mm, you know the okay. shootings and things of that nature. In our little world where we lived, that was foreign to us. But they didn't know that. They didn't know that. Yeah, for sure. Like and, you said, new. And to us, they were intruders coming into our into projects where we lived and, and roll, rolling in like that. So yeah. I say that story to say that we understand my, my friend Joe was a white man in a black neighborhood. One of two that lived in a, probably a 10-mile square area, okay? And he was harassed every single day by a black cop, a detective. Wow. Cherry. Huh. And as we, when we got older, of course, we would marvel at the, how interesting the dynamic was. Sure. That here it is, the norm is that in a black neighborhood – you get harassed by a white cop. Yeah, right. They're not from your area. Right. They lived out on Long Island. They would just, you know, they worked at the, the local precinct. But you have this white guy who lived in the area before any of us. The yeah. complex was built in 1963. His family moved in in 1963. So here we are in the, in the early 80s. He's lived there longer than anybody. Yeah. He's one of the few white families that never moved out. Okay. Huh. And but he's being harassed by this black detective for no reason. To to this day, we couldn't figure out the reason. That is an interesting dynamic. And accused him of a crime, a robbery, really that he didn't commit. It was impossible, humanly impossible for him to commit it. Okay, but accused him of a crime, and eventually, you know, you're poor, you have no money, you can't fight these things. He pled to a petty theft, even though he. There's no way on this earth he could have committed that crime, but because you know he couldn't fight it and, and didn't want to waste his time going back, blah, 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 he pled to a petty theft, paid a fine, and that was that. His mother asked me, she said, did, he, did Joe really do it? I looked at her, I said, Mrs. Williams, I said, we would never ever, this was, it was a, a woman was robbed. Her, you know, a pocketbook was stolen from her. Oh, okay, like and, a pickpocket. Yeah, across the way in another circle, across the way. It's like walking from the circle we lived into the circle five is like almost three quarters of a mile. Oh, wow. Okay, okay. that's how big the complex was. Sure. I said, Mrs. Williams, we would never ever do something like that. Yeah, we at that age, you know, we were in summer of 1980. Yeah, we we. Uh, you know, may have taken a car radio or two or a battery or two. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. We were born, okay? But as far as harming people, 
even though indirectly it harmed people because they had to buy new batteries. <laughs> sure, right, right, right. <laughs> but there's karma. You know, it always comes back yeah, around to get you, right? Of when you course. get older, right? Yeah. Um, but we would never directly harm people. We weren't raised that way. So when she asked me that, I was so taken aback. Nonviolent crime. Yeah, so we was, yeah, I was so taken aback by it. And when his mother passed in the, in the, the late 80s, mid to late 80s, you know, we said you know, at least she knows for now that you, yeah. you, that you did not <laughs> right, do that. that you were not the one. You're right. not the one. We eventually found out who the guy was that did it. Yeah. And he was the only other white guy that lived in the area. Wow. And they they had they had similar, you know, they say you builds know or... similar bills, hair color, and the whole nine yards. Huh. Five nine, one seventy five. You know, five eight, one seventy five. Dirty blonde here, you know, that sure. same, you know, and there's only two of them. One was a gangster, drug dealer, gangbanger, blah, 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 and then there was Joe. Yeah. Cherry knows both of them. Detective Cherry. Yeah. Okay? So the moment he got the ID, okay, the moment he got the ID, he drove. He knew exactly where to find us. We're sitting in his father's car in the parking lot smoking a joint. Yeah. He pulls up right in front of us, gets out of the car, walks to Joe's side of the car, Start to ask him, where were you at, blah, 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 blah. And then he said, yeah, well, we had a crime committed over here. A lady got robbed, blah, 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 blah. And I said, Cherry, there's, he was with me from 1030. There's no way he could have committed that crime. Yeah. He says, well, I still got to take him in, you know, and we'll find out. Put him in cuffs, put him in the back of the car. Oh, wow. Him. I'm sorry. They walked him to the station because the station is like 100 yards behind us. Okay. And you're saying this detective knew that other individual. Oh, yeah, he knew the other guy. And knew that that person had that rap. Oh, definitely. He knew that guy was a gangster, gangbanger, drug dealer. He wanted to get Joe. Oh, he wanted Joe bad. Yeah. Yeah. He's the type of guy that would see us sitting on the, you know, on the benches and we, you know, might be smoking a joint or something. And he'd walk up. He'd get out of his squad, get out of his unmarked car, walk up to us, show it to me. You mean a bag? Of yeah, meat, yeah, yeah. And he would pour it out, stomp it stomp out, stomp it with his feet, <laughs> crumble up the bag, throw it on the ground, and get back in his car. But that was, you know, and even sure. uniform cops did that back in the day to us. Okay, that was policing back then. But this guy was different. So in a weird way, Joe, as a white person, could identify with a black person who was being tormented harassed by and it. harassed by the police. Wow. And I, I'm his best friend. I'm black. Okay. And with him was never harassed. Yeah. So you would have think it would have been the opposite. Sure. Right. You right. Right. I mean? But I was never harassed. There but, was a role but he reversal. experienced it. Hmm. But if you ask me today and I, I tell my wife, at times, I can't identify with that because it never happened to me. Right. But it happened to Joe, but in a just a, a weird reverse cycle way that yeah. I don't think anyone would believe that it would happen. But it actually did because we lived it. Yeah. That is crazy. So when I came out here, one of the things I said to people out here was that, that I found different than in New York, New York City. It was apparent to me that the people out here had a little bit more respect for the police. Yeah. Okay. I said, because where I come from, it meant nothing if you had a gun or a badge to the gangsters, the gang banners, the drug dealers. It meant nothing for them to take a shot at you. 
Right. Okay. So their level of heightness and awareness as a police officer was vastly different out there, uh, you know, back in, sure. in New York. Okay. You never saw a cop one in a car. There was two, sometimes three. Huh. Okay. Where, so Hyper-vigilant. It was, right. So out here, when I moved out here, and I saw there was just one guy riding in the car. I said, you would never see that where I came from. Okay. And I immediately realized or noticed the difference in the way that, you know, the police were kind of respected. So you didn't hear about police shootings, even in Oakland or San Francisco, the quote unquote, two big, closest big cities, right? right? With urban environments, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You didn't hear about it. I said, wow. I said, where I come from, and when I I say all of New York City, but I'm speaking to South Jamaica, Queens, it was nothing to hear about, you know, two cops getting shot at getting shot at, yeah. and so on and so forth. And here's an interesting irony. Here I am working in the addiction field. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago, right, I'm sitting in the super, board of supervisors meeting and they're talking about the burn funding, B Y R N E burn funding. Every time I heard it, I'm like, there's something about that name that, 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 this sounds familiar, but I couldn't place it. Yeah. Could not place it. I was talking to our intake director, Mr. Peck, and I said, Peck, we get this money, this criminal justice money, but they there's a, the name that they use for it is called the burn funding. That's all it says. It doesn't have nothing, no other name attached to it. I finally Googled it. I couldn't believe what it was. Officer hmm. Edward Byrne. Out of the 113 precinct where we grew up, summer of 1986, shot dead in his patrol car, shot in the head, guarding a witness house in South Jamaica, Queens, who was going to be testifying against one of the drug kingpins in sure. South Jamaica, Queens. Sure. And, he, and he was a rookie. Wow. Um, they got the three dudes, okay. um, but he was recognized federally. And so it became known as the burn funding for sure, criminal okay, justice sure, funding. Yeah, it was right? national at that point. And I was like, wow, I knew that name was familiar. I just couldn't remember it. And when I was found seeing it, it was Edward Burns. And I remember that. It was such the tension in the community when that happened, when that officer got killed, was um, you can. I don't know how it is everywhere else, but in New York, when an officer gets shot or killed, they roll a little bit differently, like in the days or two after that. Huh. And so the streets kind of clear a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can imagine, you right? Because it's almost like, you know, the rule books, Get go, out of the the way. Rule books go out the window. <laughs> right. Okay. And so when he got killed, that officer got killed, it was a, it was a, a unbelievable event. Hmm. Okay. They found the dudes in Hollis, Queens who did it. I mean, obviously they, they, did it quick? You know that show on television, the first forty-eight. Yes. Okay. So watching that, I you, know, you learn how they go right. about their investigations and find people who commit homicides. Uh-huh. And so I kind of piece in my mind how how they were able to quickly find Locate those them, yeah. three dudes. And and by the way, they didn't do themselves any any favors in the in terms of bragging about it and oh, and, and, of course, and, and sure. whatnot. Um, but it was it. From that point on, at 1986, it was like a, it's like a Mendoza line in, in South Jamaica, Queens history. Okay. okay. 
when that shooting happened of that police officer, it kind of flipped over. And they went, they really rolled hard, clean up, because the crack epidemic was in full, it was full blown. Full swing at, at that, that time. Point. And they kind of really rolled in there. So if my father was alive today, I think he would, and in terms of what is going on with the, 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 the police shootings of civilians and vice versa, he would ask, because since they didn't have firearms, he, since he didn't have a firearm as a constable, they had to be trained in communication okay, and de-escalating. Okay, sure. That makes right. sense. Um, and not – and you not escalating an event, and if an escal and an event got escalated, how to de-escalate? How to bring it back down? Yeah. And they were also trained in hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, you have to be because they didn't have a, they, gun, they didn't have a right. firearm. Okay. And I think, and I was telling my wife this. I said two things have to change. Number one, training because the officers need to learn how to communicate. And I wrote this long thing on on one of the incidents of how it could have all been avoided with communication. And I've seen officers do this who I were properly trained in terms of just the way they approach the scene and the words that they use and how they use them. Okay. Okay. Could make so much of a difference in terms of how somebody reacts, even someone you think might be dangerous. Hmm. You know, you suspect they might be, you don't know they are, but you suspect they might be but to not escalate the situation in order to protect yourself. And right. You know? And there would need to be proper training for that because oh. a lot is involved in something from nonverbal communication, body language and exactly. cues that you give off with your posture and right. eye contact And Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot that goes into it for sure. Right. That's definitely what he would be talking about on that end. And on the other end, in terms of them now being targeted. Mm-hmm. Okay would be very troublesome to him. Be very troublesome because are are we trying to start a war here? Right. Of course the citizens outnumber even the military. Right. Okay. But are we is it is it going to be a bloodbath before good people say wait a second. Prevail or No, there there is a solution to this. There is a solution to this. Sure. The other one, which I'm not going to spend too much time on because I know we're past the top of the hour, and that is <clears throat> in every organization, okay, every mostly private, public is a little bit different, it seems, okay, but in every organization, if someone doesn't, if someone does something that's worthy of them being fired, they get fired. There's no, you get fired, you can fight it later. If you think it was unjust, then you can you can appeal, sure. but you're sure. fired, you're no longer working. If more chiefs, more commissioners had the ability to fire on the spot, give me a badge, give me a gun, you're gone, boom, you want to fight it with the union, go ahead. But that's not how we do police work. That would send the message. And I think that's what my dad would say. That they need to be – more authority needs to be the union to them. The union has to play a, a role in giving – the authority for the police chiefs and the police commissioners to, or if the union doesn't do that, the police chiefs and commissioners need to have the ability to say, you know what, bump that. You're fired. Give me your gun and badge. And you know what? You want to fight it? Go ahead. But you're not going to be on the street working for me. Right. That would send a message and let them fight it, but get them off the street. And when I say 
fired means not paid administrative leave. <laughs> right. You're no, fired. you're fired. You're done here. Okay. That would change a lot. And I think that's what he would say. That's the end of my story. It's a good story, and I, I would tend to... I survived the 80s. <laughs> you, did, you did indeed. <laughs> and I tend to agree with your father in that. Um, that would send a message. We would just have to hope that the chiefs and commissioners that are in place are have to be have to have good the, people themselves, and, and they have to have the moral, uh, you know, standing and right. the, and the and the to guts say that this isn't right to do it, right? Exactly, because the people aren't going to stand for it, right? Just like we stood our ground against those officers the way they came in rolling through our neighborhood, mm-hmm. and the, and and because of that and the way we did it, it forced change on both sides. Right. Both sides eventually kind of put their the shields down put a the little shields bit. Shields down, <laughs> and next thing you know, a month and a half later, we're like, "What's up? How you doing? You want to come on over for dinner yeah. later?" <laughs> <You know what laughs> <I mean? laughs> right, right. So we weren't seeing this. They, we didn't see each other anymore as threats. Sure, but that came through eventual uh, kind of understanding, some communication. Even though the first communication was rough, it was still communication. Sure, you're not going to treat me this way. I'm not going for it, you know, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely some things have to happen. Um, but tying it all back into the topic, it's relevant and it's important to talk about. And there's certainly not just in the facilities that we work for here, but facilities around the area, they're human beings, you know, like you said, people aren't widgets. There are human beings here that are going to feel things Mm -hmm. about. Certainly we probably have some, clients here or there are clients in the community in some program who have relatives that are either a part of the police force or you know maybe friends of friends who know of the people who are on the other end of that been mistreated Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so important to talk about this relevant stuff although it's not happening within these walls so to speak right yeah good topic yep good stuff well we are beyond the top of the hour, but hey, story time. Sometimes story time's got to go a little yeah. bit. We got to let that out. So we're going to take a quick commercial break here. We do see that we have some callers um, in the waiting rooms on hold to talk in our recovery support time segment. It's been we, a while. We thank them. Yeah, we thank you for the patience, and we hope you've enjoyed the show to this point. We look forward to getting to you all on the other side during our recovery support time. But for now I find 
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. Okay, welcome back to Roadshow Recovery. So the, re- the reason why that drop, I get I get to get you back this time on that drop is because I'm gonna go to the phones first since people have been nice enough to hold, and then we'll hit some. Uh, and then we'll hit X-files. some files. Okay. Uh, let's see who's been holding the longest. Let's go to. Oh, you haven't had a chance. No, to, uh, that's what the oh, okay. that so X Files segment is is there for. All right. Well, let's do some X Files, and then I'll give you a chance to. <laughs> Theodore from Pacifica wants to know how can I avoid triggers from family members or family get-togethers. You can't, especially if you've uh, done them wrong. You're going to have the biggest trigger, guilt. But I think I understand what you're talking about, Theodore. I mean, at family get-togethers and gatherings, and if you're in recovery, you don't drink, you don't do this, you don't do that. And, you know, and it's some family tradition. They're going to have alcohol and they're going to, you know, what have you. And your job is to be able to uh, deal with it. Because you're not going to be able to dictate, oh, because Theodore's coming, let's, let's we won't have any beer or we won't have this out. I, I doubt that's going to be the reality. So it's not avoiding the triggers. Yeah, some triggers you're going to be able to avoid. But in the reality, the majority of them, no, you're going to have to learn how to face them, identify them, and then what's going to be your coping mechanism for them. I'm not big on avoidance. I'm big on learning how to deal with it head on. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's see. We're, we're probably never ever going to get through this stack. They just build up. Um, 
David from Los Angeles. When is it going? When it when is it good to start dating again? I've been sober and single for two years, and I'm interested in someone. As many have heard of me say, and Mr. Producer shares the same sentiments. I have I've never been and probably never will be a big fan of establishing quote unquote a timeline. Uh, for those in recovery, especially when they're in the state, you know, when they're no longer in a residential setting, what have you, and they're out there living their lives and doing their thing, that there has to be some time, uh, uh, pre-established timeline before you can involve yourself in, in a romantic relationship. You don't know when romance is going to strike. Nobody knows that. Uh, so, um, free yourself, David. You've been single and sober for two years. Uh, your time has passed. Meaning, <laughs> for lack of a better expression, you've served your time. Go out there, enjoy yourself. Get involved. Be involved. The reason, the, the reasoning behind with that, where people used to say, you know, don't get involved for one year or don't, you know, in relationships or two years, whatever it was, is the concern that if you were young in your recovery, that getting involved with someone romantically may throw you off course and 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 cause you to go, you know, go sideways in your recovery process. Yes, there may be truth to that. And yes, there is probably solid reasoning behind that position. But again, I have to go with the other argument, and that is nobody can predict when love is going to come their way. In the old supermarket, uh, uh, frozen vegetable aisle, produce, produce department, <laughs> <laughs> etc. You don't know when it's going to hit you, where it's going to find you, and so to you, you, to, you shouldn't be closed to it. You should be open to it, but you are in control of how fast or slow it goes. You can dictate the the, the speed at which it moves forward. So if you have that available to you, then you can, you know, make sure that things don't go sideways with your recovery while you're pursuing this possible relationship. That's just me. And I've always advised clients of the same over the years. That's just my opinion. <laughs> Others have their own. That's fine. True enough. All right. We've, we all screened up. We're screened up. All right. Let's go to... Um, Daniel from Redwood City, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, How you doing? Good, good. Um, just another day. Um, How can we help you, sir? And speak up a little bit so we can hear you. Okay. Uh, I was just listening oh, much to better. you. Know, and, and um, you know, got a lot, got a lot of thoughts going through. You know, um, what kind of question can I ask? Though that's the question. <laughs> Like, what can it be based on? Uh, I'll leave that up to you. We'll tell you if it's on point or off point, if it's something we can cover. 
All right. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of things, but I just want to like make it like short and simple. Nothing uh, difficult. But all right, go ahead. Um, say you you're in a, in a group, you know, in a facility, and you you um, care for other members, but they're falling. But you want to help them, but you can't really, you know, because I feel like the staff have a blind eye to things because it's not their job, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> it's something that um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, let me let me see if I can help you. You started off by saying how how can you help other people who are falling off the way falling by the wayside not doing their thing. Yeah. And like um have you tried have you have you tried to talk to them? Have you tried to help them? Yeah, but you know they we are you know some you know just be around the bush. So Okay. Can't, you know they know and they know that you know, but they don't want to, you know, put it on blast. But, you know, because I, I, I'm a type of person that, like, when I feel like someone's trying to do something with self, and I would try to, like, at least do my best and, and try to keep them strong. But mm-hmm. you know, everyone everyone got their own. They walk on their own. They do what they want. You know, you can't control nobody. All but right. It's like, it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Cause All I know, right, Daniel. I'm 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 gonna give you an old school saying. You ready? Yeah. When you're in that type of environment, when when you go into a, a recovery setting, it's first about you, right? You're the most important person. Yeah. And it starts and ends with you. So there's this saying that that's been around before me. So I'm just gonna roll it down the hill to you. It's called, here's the saying, all for one and one for all, but every man for himself. Yeah, yeah. Do you understand that, what that means? Yeah, it's pretty, um... That, that means that it's okay to want to help your peer, to help your fellow client who you think is kind of falling off the side and not doing what they should be doing. But ultimately, it's about you. You can't yeah. save everybody. Mm, you're, there, but... you're there for you. Yeah. And so, yes, you try and talk to them. You try and drop some wisdom on them. You try and pull them up. But ultimately, if they're starting to drag you down mentally, emotionally, psychologically, physically, spiritually – it's time Not to let really, them go. I, I, I know I'm here by myself, and I came by myself. And mm-hmm. these people, I never thought I'd catch a bond with most of them. But, you know, right. after a while of being here, cause I got seven months clean and sober and being here at the same time because I came That's up the tough. street. Yep. And and I see people that want to do something good with themselves, but then they, after a while, they fall. And then you, like, you, you know, you're doing your thing, too, at the same time, but you feel bad because you I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to explain for it. Some, like, for some people, wish, for some people, Daniel, because falling. People, yeah, because there's not a lot of focus on them, and they and they they hang themselves. But it's like, right? Uh, I don't know. Sometimes I just 
Daniel, you do understand, Daniel, you do understand for some people, falling is a part of their process. Yeah. Okay? It's a part of their process. Okay? Uh, yeah, I hear you because, like, you go, you know, you go through some times and you fall and you get back up. I, yes. I, 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 okay? Yeah. All yeah. right, sir. I, Thank you. All right, right Thank you. All right, bye-bye. We have to be careful sometimes when we're advising um, clients, you know, in our program and, and others. You know, we're always telling them, you know, about helping your pair and, you know, right. being there for your pair and so on and so forth. But there's a cutoff to a, point. To a line. Yes. Right, exactly. To a line. Um, and it might, I know that sounds harsh, you know, to, but the reality is, is that you cannot sink yourself to no, save somebody no. else. You came in for you. Right. You're the priority. So uh, let's go to uh, Ryan from uh, Jerusalem. Welcome to the show. It must be uh, 3 o'clock in the morning over there. Hello? Hello? Hello. Welcome. How can we Hello? help you, sir? Um, I was wondering how long it it, it takes until your brain starts to really heal and you think clearly. See, I have about two years of meth use and I've been clean for now maybe 45 days. And I was just wondering how long it would be until I start really, you know, thinking differently um, until I, I would be able to to tell, you know, uh, on my own. Can I first tell you some truths? Yes. Okay. So methamphetamine is very hard on the body. Right. And the brain. So, yeah, obviously the brain's in the body. Um, so normally, this is just generally speaking, with each person it's going to be different, but just generally speaking, about 90 days clean from the drug before the right. body starts to come back around. So about you're about days. at yeah, about 90 days. You're about at the midway point. So I want to ask you just from your individual personal experience, have you noticed a difference from day 1 to how you feel now? Physically. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um yeah, there's so, a lot of difference. Um I'm able <clears throat> I'm able to sleep better. Good. You know, Good. Um, be able to How about your diet? Clearly. How about your diet? My diet, yeah. Um, I'm eating three times a day. Good. Uh, to where I, I wasn't eating some, some days at all. Okay. So imagine how you feel now, which is an improvement from day one, and think about, wow, 45 days from now, it's going to be double what I feel right now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so you, say, you have some you have something positive to look forward to. You just keep going day by day by day and you continue to feel better and better and better. Right on. Okay? Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I should have we forgot to add our disclaimer. 
we're neither, not doctors. We're not doctors. Neither one of us have gone to uh, medical school. Right. We're both uh, dropouts. That's right. Pre-med dropouts. Yep. But, uh, you know. Once we got our books. <laughs> yeah. 45 days is solid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, obviously, two years of meth is going to do some things. But just the idea that, oh, you're calling in. He's calling in. He's asking about it. Um, like you asked him about his diet and other things like what's starting to normalize in your life because eventually that will follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one step at a time, you know, but he's taking it one step at a time and getting some other things in order that will follow too. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm going to go back to our X files. <clears throat> oh, by the way, how, how are we on time, sir? Cause I, I do want to, I want to speak a... to our closing song. Because it's important sure, sure. to our topic. You've got about 12 minutes, okay. call it. All right. Um, all right. I already read that one. Okay. So, uh, Rosalinda from Union City. What can an addict do to be declared, her words, a former addict? And then... She writes, can 20 to 30 years clean and sober classify him or her as being a former addict? Comes back. Are you back, Mr. Producer? We're back. So the reason I wanted you back to hear for this question, I know you were screening the call. Um, When can an addict – what can an addict do to be declared a former addict? It's a two-part question, and then can 20 to 30 years clean and sober classify him or her as being a former addict? (laughs) We're making declarations here, handing out pins. It's like uh, graduating from college. Um, You know, but all jokes aside, it's an interesting question Mm -hmm. because I know that, and you and I have kind of discussed this openly on the show, that for some people, the counting time and this, this and that means nothing to them. The significance is, does not lie in that. At some point, a decision was made, a mm. switch went off, and this is just ridiculous. I need to move on to the next chapter of my life. Mm-hmm. And that's no longer the light with which you view yourself. In. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think there, there's no arbitrary amount of time you can say that, oh, yes, at this point, we'll give you a handshake and, and you'll get sent the certificate from the board of you're no longer an addict. And you can move, you move forward. Uh, it's different for everybody. That's a real organization. <laughs> it could be. It could be. Um, but it, it really is an internal. It really is an internal mechanism at work. At some point, someone might feel in their life that you're just done. You've made a decision. This is something that I did, and I can own that and mm-hmm. acknowledge that and mm-hmm. learn from that. And I did some work behind maybe trying to understand why that was, but mm-hmm. now I live a different way mm-hmm. and, and this, it's just, it's just a decision. And so whenever you get to that point mentally or emotionally, if you've gone through this process, I'd say that's when that is, mm-hmm. you don't have to label yourself as anything or classify yourself as anything forever mm-hmm. because there was a period of your life where, you were struggling with something or you were discovering something about yourself. Um, but it happens organically. It's not, you know, at the five or 10 or 20 year mark, it's, 
at some point, have you just made this decision for you because that's what you want to do, mm-hmm. and we're not looking at the clock or, or collecting chips anymore, then it is what it is. Mm-hmm. You move forward. But for some people, too, and this is not necessarily wrong, um, they may always see themselves in that light. And they may count the days until the day they pass away. Mm -hmm. And that's fine, too, if that's something that you take pride in and that's something that you feel you want to do or is necessary for you to do in your recovery. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to knock anybody who's doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Whatever continues to keep you motivated or whatever importance you want to place on it is great. Mm -hmm. If you're doing the right thing, I'm not going to knock you for it. But there are some individuals who yet you just kind of move forward from that and move on from that. And if that happens internally and in an organic fashion, then that's what it is. Mm-hmm. I agree with everything that you stated. Um, I usually take no position unless someone asks the question. Mm-hmm. And then I tell them what my opinion is on it. And that is, like you said, we did a show on the definition of an addict. Yeah. And I always tell clients, says, at, cert- at a certain point, you no longer meet that definition. Mm-hmm. And so in my opinion, it, is not, it doesn't serve you well to refer to yourself in that vein. Because right. when you say that word, society has a certain v- meaning to it and a certain view. And it is not positive. Right. And so why then would you yourself continue to reser- refer to your own self if, to something? For, to something that is not positive. Right. That's the argument that I make. However, as you stated, we understand why in certain circles, in certain realms, that people do, it's important to them, and so on. So, so mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't make the argument in terms of, of trying to convince them otherwise. Yeah, that you shouldn't. We make the argument as to – it's more an intellectual argument, right. as we were talking about earlier, right? as to uh, why – um, you are, and even though you may say, Hey, my name is so-and-so, I'm an addict. I will say, say to you in actuality, you're not because you're right. no longer living that lifestyle or you're no longer thinking as one, so on, so on, so on. But if you want to stand up at a meeting and say that, that's fine. Yeah. That's like you said, how you choose to yeah, that's your prerogative. live your recovery. Sure. <laughs> Who we got? We got we got a southern one calling Carmen from Los Angeles. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. You're welcome. So my question is: is I've been without my kids and um, for about four months. I'm planning on being around them and moving in with my parents in uh, a few days. What should I expect to, or more of advice to not become overwhelmed? Overwhelmed with what specifically? With the children? With exactly. With the, okay, because you got a cup, maybe three different things going on there that can possibly be issues if not handled properly. You have you coming home to and but to your parents' home, mm-hmm. okay, and you're grown. And you're going to be resuming the parenting of your children, correct? Do I have it all? Yes. Okay. So 
has the is there a mutual understanding with the parents that you've come to an agreement in terms of how things are going to be just as you just between you and the parents is that squared away um yeah okay you, you didn't say so yes so i've had my kids from from day 1 and um right. and this is the longest that i've um been without them and i try to parent as much as i can um when i do see them on the weekends or when i do when i'm able to make phone calls i still continue to try parenting but um i'm going to have them full time and i'm just concerned about becoming overwhelmed and taking time to myself You're going to be stepping right back into motherhood. There's, I mean, there's no two way, there's no two ways about it, and that's just going to have to be a, as a part of your existence while you're in recovery. That's the reality that you have to prepare for and cope with. There's no magic avoidance of that. Yeah. So when you say, in terms of your question, how do I keep from being overwhelmed, that's a – since only you're going to be aware of all of the, like, the, 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 the details of your specific situation when you, when you go back home to your parents' house and you start reparenting your children full-time, mm-hmm. you have to quickly figure out what my uh, coping mechanism is going to be if – I get overwhelmed or I sense myself being overwhelmed. What am I going to do? How am I going to deal with it? This needs to happen in advance. Yeah. I've got, it's, got, it's hard though. Time. It's hard though for someone else to tell you in this circumstance, what you should do if that happens. You follow me? Yeah. This is like one of those, just one of those circumstances where you, you kind of have to plan it out. You know your kids. You know your parents. You know you. What can come up? What, what have I done historically? These are all these questions that have to be answered and kind of laid out. So there's a plan in place. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to put pen to paper. Nothing wrong with having a, a plan on paper that you can refer back to. Yeah, and I, and I think I'm going home with some good um, coping skills and, and some good um, tools that, that I, I can use. Um, I'm just more or less concerned about parenting when I haven't been able to do, like, full-time for a little while. Oh, they say it's like riding a bike. Is it Mr. Producer? <laughs> parenting? How do you know? You don't have any kids. I wouldn't. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's like riding a bike. Yeah, un- unless you don't bring any uh, things into the arena, I think that that will just happen naturally, how it should. So as long as you don't drop anything into the arena that shouldn't be in there, none of your stuff, so to speak, mm-hmm. you should be okay. The problems okay. usually come when people drop their stuff into the mix. <laughs> and your kids don't need your stuff. Okay. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Point again. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Children have, my hands are in quotes, suffered enough 
Yeah. So they don't need uh you basically you, you got to um you 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 got to what do you call it when you, you you're walking in boom right on the job. You don't get no break. No days off. Nothing. You got time off to get your act together, get your life together, get back on track. But now you're getting right back in it. And uh, as far as the kids are concerned, there's no days off. No. Uh-uh. You know what I mean? There's no. I no, need, you're home. There's, that's there's, it. There's no mommy timeouts. Yeah, let me let me give you a break. <laughs> we, no, uh-uh. It's go time. So. Are we good on time? Do I have time to. uh Uh, you have about three minutes. Okay. So one of the things that we did today, um, we, I, I, we chose for our music, a couple of songs that we think are in, in in the words, uh, kind of speak to a mindset that I think, uh, people should indulge themselves in. During this time, mm-hmm. um, you know I'm a big fan of the Commodores, Lionel Richie, um, and a lot of the groups from back then, back in the day. Uh, because when you got past the music and, and the rhythm and the beats and started listening to the words, there's a lot of you know meaning, messaging uh, that tied to situation, circumstances, time, time periods, etc. Right. Um, and we try and pick our our, uh, our 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 music sometimes related to our topic, mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. and sometimes it just you know what do we feel like hearing, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but today we tried to pick our uh, our, our music break song um, and our closing song um, to speak to a lot of the angst that's going on in society mm-hmm. right now, and. We let's narrow it down. It's no, it's no different than a big a family. Okay, the family has issues, and the family has to resolve the issues. If the neighborhood has issues, the neighborhood has to resolve the issues. If the broader town has issues, the town has to resolve. You just keep going out further and further and further and further and further till you get to the nation. Mm-hmm. The nation has issues. It has to be resolved. But everything starts back at home, locally, believe it or not. It always works its way back to there because you can't go – you you can't go to the White House and and, and say, let let me borrow the mic. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Let me borrow the mic. It's true. Right? So you can only do what you can do in your own little – your own little nuclear family little world. That's right. Okay. To uh, talk about the things that are going on and, and, and air them out and uh, talk about what, you know, if, if we had the microphone, what would, what would we say would be the, sol- should be the solutions to, 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 to calm things down. Mm-hmm. Like I said, 90% of the world is still dying to come here even with all the problems that we have. Yeah. They're still dying to come here. And I mean dying, literally, dying to come here. You know, they'll do anything. You know, go across oceans, you know, and 
right. just from Cuba to Florida. You know what I mean? I mean, it's still an ocean, or the Caribbean true. Sea, whatever you want to call it. Um, but people do it to, you know, for to get to America. Right. As bad as America can be made out to be at times, and sometimes not wrongly so. But the bottom line is, people are still trying to trying to get here. And I always say, you know, why why are they trying to come here? Because they 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 hear about these things internationally, you know. They hear about what's going on, right? You know? Whether it's big or small, they still know about this, you know, what what this country, the history, and what's happening now. They still they still want to come. What's drawing them here? What's not there where they are that they say, hey, I'll still come here? I have family members in Jamaica that are doing whatever they can to get their kids out. Yeah. Here. Hmm. Doing whatever they can to get their kids out. Because there's, there's, you know. No opportunity. No opportunities and other things politically going on and just, you know, what have you. And it's, you know. That exist in all over the world. Right. Imagine what it's like living in the in the Middle East, Middle Africa. Yeah. Yeah. I once said to someone, you know, we were talking about in the seventies and eighties, and we were having a conversation talking about racism. And as I got older and learned, uh, a, a, a black gentleman said to me, and, this, and I had to go and, and do some research and read up about it. He says, "If you think racism bad, you should see what tribalism is about." Hmm. And I didn't know what the hell he was talking about until I went and, you know, educated myself. What the hell do you mean, tribalism? I was like, my goodness. What tribe are you from? Oh, I'm from the Watu tribe. Oh, yeah, well, that's down the road. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Keep it moving. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and they're the same color skin. So it's not a skin color thing there. It's a tribal thing. And they say it's worse than racism. My only comeback was that, well... For the person experiencing tribalism, it's the worst thing in the world. For the person experiencing racism, it's the worst thing in the world. For the person experiencing any ism at that moment in time, it's the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Whatever it is, sexism, worst thing in the world. True. All I'm trying to say for myself is that, you know, I just want the Yankees to be in first place. I want the Giants <laughs> to make the playoffs and the Knicks to do something. That's, a, that's, that's all I it. want. That's all you ask. That's all I ask. <laughs> oh, man, that's too much. Good. Were you a staff person? How, how are, we, are we in? We're, we're beyond, but I didn't want to cut you off. That was good oh, what oh. you were saying. Okay. Were you a staff person when I told the staff to take two weeks off from watching the news? No. Okay. So that was before. Okay. I did that one time at staff meeting. I said, take two weeks off from watching the news because it's not good for your health. Yeah, true. Okay. And true. and then after that two weeks, compare to how you are mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Yeah, then to now. Between the two. So I last, that's it. I'm done. Okay. All right. Uh, well, with that, we're going to drop the song, listen to the lyrics, listen to the message. We appreciate all the ongoing support. We wish everybody a safe couple of weeks. And we will uh, be breaking down the first preseason game the next time we talk. Yep.
Whoa! 